0: Welcome to the KPMG financial reporting podcast series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today.
1: Hello, I'm John Barbagallo, a managing director at KPMG, and welcome to another installment in our podcast series on the new Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS Act. In today's episode, we will be discussing the introduction of a new option for taxpayers to monetize certain tax credits and a direct pay election available for those credits. Today's discussion will be with two of my colleagues from KPMG, Ashby Corum, a partner with Washington National Tax, and Meredith Kennedy, a partner in our Department of Professional Practice. Ashby has been closely monitoring this new tax legislation, and Meredith is one of our subject matter experts on revenue recognition and accounting for government grants. I wanna thank them both today for joining us and sharing their insights on the new tax law. So Ashby, let's start with you. What I noticed about this direct pay election is sometimes it's referred to as a refundable credit. So tell us how this direct pay mechanism works and if it's the same thing as a refundable credit.
2: Thanks, John. Yes, direct pay really is just another word for a refundable credit. And and what it provides, it's really an option that allows the taxpayer to receive cash back from the government for some kind of incentivized activity. So, in other words, a company does not need to have taxable income or to incur any type of tax liability in order to realize the benefit of the credit. It shows up on their tax forms, similar to an estimated payment. If they don't owe any tax for the year, they can just elect to have that refunded at the end of the year. And really, those are just thought to be on the tax forms for some kind of administrative convenience. And the credits are economically delinked from a company's income tax profile.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ashby. So do you think this new legislation could change the model for investors that participate in these types of energy deals?
2: I think there's a real possibility that could happen. Historically, many project sponsors in the green energy space were challenged to have enough taxable income and income tax liability to utilize some of the significant credits that go along with those projects. So historically, they've created some really creative structures where they create partnerships and bring in third-party investors and have special allocations of the credits, and that really ultimately allowed those credits incentives to be monetized. And so I think this may create a scenario where companies really don't need to go through that complicated structuring and really the sponsor, the person really leading and building out the project may simply be able to elect to have the credits refunded directly to them.
1: Yeah, Aspie, thank you. Very, very interesting. Uh, Appreciate that. Okay, so Meredith, turning to you. In one of our other podcast episodes, we touched on which accounting model should be used for these types of credits. So, give us a little more detail on the accounting for these credits.
0: Yeah, so as Ashby mentioned, because these credits are refundable and they're not dependent on the tax status or tax position of the company, we don't consider them to be income taxes, and therefore they aren't accounted for under ASC 740. So then the question is, well, what are these credits and where do I look in US GAAP to account for them? And uh, we believe they are effectively government grants. The government is granting these credits to affect behavior of the company. And so when you look to US GAAP for accounting for government grants, there isn't authoritative guidance for business entities, for for for-profit entities in the accounting for government grants. So what companies typically do is they look for analogies. And one of the more common analogies that companies make is to IAS 20, which is the International Accounting Standard for Government Grants. And interestingly, the FASB has put a research project on their agenda to consider whether or not they should pull in IAS-20 into U.S. GAAP and make it authoritative for business entities, for-profit entities to account for government grants.
1: Okay, got it. So, just to summarize, there's currently no U.S. GAAP on point and a financial statement preparer could analogize to IAS-20 to record these types of credits. So, tell us how IAS-20, how that model works.
0: Yeah. so IAS-20 starts off with a threshold that companies must clear before they can begin to account for government grants under the government grant model. What it says is that a company needs to have reasonable assurance that they're going to comply with the conditions of the grant and that they're going to receive the grant. And so when we think about that in the context of IS 20 International Accounting Standards, using the phrase of reasonable assurance, when we're analogizing for purposes of U.S. GAAP financials, we need to translate that language into U.S. GAAP. And so what we believe, and we understand the SEC also believes, is that reasonable assurance translates to probable under U.S. GAAP. So a company needs to be able to assert that it's probable that they're going to meet the conditions of the grant and that they're going to receive the grant before they can begin to account for it under a government grant model. And so that also includes considering recapture risk. So that's just the kind of starting point for government grant accounting. It doesn't tell you when to recognize in the income statement, that depends on the nature of the grant.
1: Yeah, thanks, Meredith, very helpful. So, Ashby, turning back to you, I understand for some of these refundable credits, there are also these bonus credits available to companies meeting certain criteria. For example, the prevailing wage requirement, the apprenticeship requirement, and the domestic content requirement. So, if a company analogizes to IAS 20, Tell us about the challenges a company might face when trying to meet those criteria.
2: Companies are going to have a challenge. It's the first time many of these requirements have ever existed around tax credits. And so companies are going to have to understand how the rules operate and make sure they structure their business to meet them and to set up the systems and processes and controls to confirm that they are meeting the requirements and and doing all this for the first time. As part of that, they're not really going to be sure how these actually operate, at least initially out of the starting gate. We don't really have any guidance from Treasury on their views on how it should operate. Initially, companies are going to be analyzing this purely by their own read of the statute, and then over time, as regulations and other authoritative guidance comes out, they'll have to adjust their models to fit that new guidance.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ashby. It sounds like we should be on the lookout for you know clarifying guidance in the future. But for now, you're right, it will be challenging for preparers. So, Meredith, back to you and the accounting for these grants. So, how do preparers account for the grants once they are recognizable?
0: So this is where it really depends on the nature of the credit. And as Ashby mentioned, really understanding what the conditions are and then how the company is actually going to meet those conditions. So that's really important to determine how to recognize these grants in the income statement. And so what IS-20 provides is two big buckets of grants. And they divide it up into asset grants and income grants. And so if the grant is related to an asset, which means the grant is incentivizing the construction or the purchase of an asset that's going to be recognized on your balance sheet, the accounting under IS 20 says that you're going to recognize that income in line with the useful life of that asset. And then it provides a policy election to account for that on a gross or net basis. So the net basis would be that you recognize that income as a reduction of the cost basis of the asset. So it basically comes in over time as the asset is depreciated or amortized as kind of an offset to that expense. The other option where you can recognize those asset grants on a gross basis, you'd recognize them as grant income. So you'd set up a deferred liability, recognize it as grant income, but also in line with the useful life of the asset. Now, if it's an income grant, which is a grant that's not associated with an asset, but maybe intended to offset some future expense, you're going to recognize that on a systematic and rational basis that's consistent with what the expenses and actions that the grant is intended to compensate. And so that's where it can get complicated to one figure out what it is that the grant is intending to compensate and how i as a company intend to meet those conditions and then reflecting the accounting to mirror that expense recognition and for income grants there's also the option to recognize on a gross or net basis so it could be recognized as gross grant income in a systematic and rational basis or it could also be recognized as net against the expenses to which that grant relates.
1: Yeah, thanks, Meredith. Very helpful. You know, I know recently there was a similar issue when companies were receiving government assistance under the CARES Act, and preparers in those cases sometimes analogize to other gaps. So, tell us about other acceptable accounting models for these types of transactions.
0: Yeah, sure. So IS 20, we think is probably the more common analogy that's used, but it's not the only analogy. And there is not-for-profit guidance associated with government grants that some companies analogize to. And the FASB has accepted that for-profit companies are not prohibited from analogizing to that guidance. Companies may also analogize to the gain contingency model. And so both of those models tend to result in grant income recognition that might be more delayed than under IAS 20 just given the different thresholds in those standards. But those are two other examples of analogies that companies might look to.
1: Great. Now, one last question. You mentioned the FASB has a research project on their agenda for incorporating sort of like an IAS 20 type model into U.S. GAAP, so what are your expectations from the FASB on this project?
0: I think it'll be interesting, as you mentioned, the CARES Act. You know, when people were thinking about how to account for those grants, it was kind of recognized that there's a little bit of a hole here in US GAAP where there's not authoritative guidance. And I think because a lot of companies were looking to IS 20 the FASB thought, well, maybe that's a good starting point. Um, but recognizing that IAS 20 is a very old standard, it, it was written in the early 80s. And, you know, whether or not the FASB is going to incorporate it ultimately into US GAAP and what practice actually um, thinks of that guidance is to be seen. You know, there's a lot of flexibility and policy elections in IS-20 that that some constituents may not like. So, it's out for comment right now. And so, we'll just wait and see how the FASB proceeds with incorporating that into U.S. GAAP.
1: Yeah, thanks, Meredith. Well, in my world, early 80s is not that old. So, I just want to emphasize that. So, Meredith and Ashby, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us today and taking time to walk us through the accounting and tax implications for these refundable type credits and i look forward to speaking with my kpmg colleagues on future episodes on the ira and chips act so thanks again and have a great day
0: thank you for listening to this kpmg financial reporting podcast for more in-depth financial reporting developments analysis and podcast episodes please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMGFRV.